I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm in Philadelphia, a few blocks from the Kelly Writer's House, joined here through the quasi-magic of Zoom in our virtual Wexler studio by Julia Block, whose third book of poetry came out in 2020 from Sidebrow, The Sacramento of Desire, in which, as Sawako Nakayasu says, we find a new feminist queer machinery that pervades, interrupts, and occurs high charges over a necessary tenderness. And who is currently writing a critical and scholarly book about race, gender, and lyric theory, who works and teaches in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, where she is the director of the creative writing program and very, very much a longtime trusted and beloved colleague of mine here. And by Max Crandall, poet, playwright, director, whose recent book about AIDS archives and intergenerational memory, The Nancy Reagan Collective, has won tons of accolades and is a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Transgender Poetry, who is at Stanford, where he is the, I still, I assume, Max, you're still doing this, uh, interim associate director of the Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies Program, yes, and whose current project is Before Back Eye, before, before Back High, Before, a dance theater adaptation of Ann Carson's Back High for ODC Theater in collaboration with Hope More Dance and trans puppeteer and classic scholar C. Michael Chin. And by Larissa Lai, author of eight books at last count, including most recently Iron Goddess of Mercy, a long poem inspired in part by the tumultuous history of Hong Kong, who has been deeply involved for years in Canada and elsewhere with experimental poetry and speculative fiction communities since the late 80s, who holds a Canada Research Chair at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory, where she directs the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing. Larissa, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Al. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad you could join us. And Max, you've been on Poem Talk once. But uh, it's been a while, so it's good to see you. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Fantastic. And um, can you tell us about the new project, Max, briefly? Yeah, the new project is my my most ambitious yet, I think, Al, where we have, you know, because of living in quarantine and COVID, we were working on a dance theater ad- adaptation. And then, of course, it has to be adapted into film. So it's my first time working in film, and it's been a blast, and I've been learning a lot. That's really great. Looking forward to seeing the result of that work. And Julia Block, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you. Great to see you. So today, the four of us have gathered to talk about two passages from Sarah Dowling's book, Entering Sappho which was published by Coach House Books based in Toronto in 2020. First, there's Clip, the opening poem in the volume. Second, we skip to the end, where there's a prose, a bit of prose or a prose poem, we might say, coda, called White Columns. And we'll discuss the first three paragraphs of that piece. The recordings of these parts of the new book, we will hear from Sarah Dowling's Pen Sound page, where you can find also other readings from other parts of the book, too. So here is Sarah Dowling reading clip and then a few paragraphs from White Columns. Clip. Monday, May 15th, Sappho, Washington. A logging chapter is closed. Those country maidens were good riders, flowers blooming in an old bathtub, cows grazing in an orchard, garments wet as they should be. Across the dirt road, peasant girls on the front porch, a town of five houses, oh, anyone would want to live in the fenced area nearby, anyone wet dress around her feet. 
Her dress about her ankles, an old bathtub, in the front yard horses munch grass. What wench country fried at the side of the highway has electricity, television, a telephone? Oh, it's for the birds. What rustic girl plans to enter her prize quarter horse in races this summer? She's never known anything but logging trucks. She doesn't even draw her gown across her feet. Waterflowers bloom, country girls turn north at Sappho, go to Pisht, spend time darning holes in wool socks and wondering, why would anyone pull rags over her ankles? What girl wants to live in nearness to fishing? What country girl is unspoiled nature? Young mothers by choice, they hear about it three days later. They still don't pull the cloth over their feet. Down Highway 101 apiece, what country girl says, you can do these things in cities, small town life is all I want to know. They front on the old houses for truckers and tourists, tearing down the last of the company shacks. What girl waits like a wife for wet attackers spinning yarns from her country dress? Oh, that girl gathers it up with artless grace. You can still see a girl's feet at Sappho. You can see the owner of the company store. Those girls would sit, eating clams, soft blossoms, simple dresses in a line on the ground. Maybe loggers and their families shot deer, bear, elk, some girl in the area. Why would anyone want to live when May 1 the post office closes forever? Those girls lay claim to time, backward and forward, their hemlines sweeping the ground. White Columns Entering Sappho is a portal into history, the bits that are meant to be meaningful to a person like me, as well as those that are repugnant. Entering Sappho is taking on a series of voices, versions of the ancient poetess and traces of the town. Entering Sappho is addressing history and its daughter colony, the present. Entering Sappho is a silly ritual. When you're driving to the coast on Highway 101, you come to the sign, stop, and take a picture. Entering Sappho is how you pay tribute to the original lesbian and to the generations of queers who've also paused here to photograph themselves. Entering Sappho is a moment of gleeful excitement. Cars zoom past going much faster than seems possible. It's a little scary, but entering Sappho is also hilarious. Picture the hand gestures, how people pose decade after decade in front of this unwitting monument. Entering Sappho is digging into the history of a settlement founded in 1895, just before the garbage dump discovery of the papyrus versions of Sappho's poems. This is a town with few textual traces, without any standing physical remnant. Entering Sappho is reading the slim, self-published memoirs of former child settlers, their fantastical memories of running through the forest, their naive recollections of who was armed and who was bleeding. Entering Sappho is listening to the oral histories held in the special collections at the University of Washington and reading through newspaper clippings from the Seattle Public Library. Entering Sappho is an engagement with desperate, indulgent, and condescending nostalgia. It documents a wish for this special kind of small-town life. So there are two Sapphos all along. So I think we should start by talking about the two Sapphos. And just to focus us a little bit in the prose white columns, Sarah writes, Entering Sappho is how you pay tribute to the original lesbian, and to the generations of queers who've also paused here to photograph themselves. And because it's an unwitting monument, the town, or what's left of it, and yet people stop and take pictures of themselves. I wonder if we can talk about the two Sappho's in regards to that whole, that dilemma. There is some, people stop, they pose, but the monument itself is unwitting. Who wants to start with that dilemma? Max? It's almost a, a meta moment insofar as it explains the relationship between a writer and the source, the source text, and what the modes of adaptations can be and the methodologies that we have, you know, working and that we're deploying 
in every action, you know, in every engagement. Yeah. So en- entering Sappho, Julia, entering is a big word in this book. Yeah. So there's literally entering, I guess, the town of Sappho, Sappho, Washington. Um, and then there's the sexual connotation, like entering a lover's body. Um, we can't think of Sappho without thinking of lesbianism and queerness. And it also makes me think how a sapphic is a poetic form also, which is like obviously named after Sappho, but it's also a kind of language, which I'm, I'm sure Sarah has in mind throughout this book. Um, so there's all these different ways in which to think about entering, but I'm also thinking about that word unwitting, which means kind of unintentional or um, without knowing what it's doing. And the idea that a monument doesn't know what it's doing is really interesting to me. A monument is just a piece of stone or wood that doesn't have intention, doesn't have agency, but of course is like laden with all of this history. And that history is one of the things I think this this book is trying to get us to look closer at. Um, there's a history here. There are actually many histories here um, that are bubbling up to the surface through these poems. Larissa, um, it's scary, but also hilarious. <laughs> scary in the sense that some cars are zooming past, but obviously generations of queers see the sign and stop. So there are people zooming by. That's double unwitting. <laughs> And then, but what's hilarious and what's scary? I think scary is the cars are really passing by this town without noticing it. But what's hilarious, do you think? Uh, It's hilarious because there's a sense of um, self-recognition on the landscape. When you see a sign, you know, as a lesbian, you see a sign that says entering Sappho. It's like, oh, finally. Let's pull over. Put on Yeah, let's pull over. There's a sign for me. Right? There's a sign for me here by the and side of the highway. others zoom past. Others zoom past. And that's scary. Other, you know, for me, this is interesting, Al, because I, there is a scariness about this poem. And there's also a hilarity. And there's something about this poem, this book, that in terms of its affective registers is really... um. It's really undoing me. I'm finding it so strange because that hilarity is there. You know, that sense that one would want to get out of the car and pose in whatever way, right, in front of the sign. Yet, by the same token, because the book is dealing with the problem of settler colonialism from a white lesbian location, and Sarah's quite explicit about that. So there's a very serious kind of violence, right, that's unfolding in this book at the same time. There's a real kind of like just um, a sort of incommensurability between the, the double registers of, of, of the book. And I think, you know, that it's connected to the question you and Max were talking about the two Sapphos. One Sappho, of course, is a poet, but the other Sappho is a place, right? But the placeness of the place is also double because it's Sappho, the place, the name Sappho was a colonial is a colonial imposition. But there was a place there before the name that is there. And I wonder if that is somehow connected to the scariness, you know, the weight. Maybe partly what's scary, Larissa, is the idea that some stop and recognize and make the unwitting monument a witting one, and others zoom past and the speed is scary, but also the fact that they wouldn't recognize the monumentality or the occasion for a monument. That might be scary, too. And we also, we whip, we whip past the doubleness if we don't have the analysis, right, to deal with, it's almost a tripleness because there's the poet, there's that sense of a lesbian presencing, and then there's an indigenous priority, right, that we don't see. We whip by that ind- indigenous priority, we don't, we don't see it when we look at that sign, even if, you know, we might see like the possibility of for the acknowledgement of, of queerness. Ethically, politically, historically, it couldn't be more complicated to enter Sappho. So, you know, I think Sarah assented to the choice of clip. It was certainly my thought to use clip, the first poem. And I think it 
it you get to clip and that's the scary part of the scary hilarious axis is front and center there so let's turn to it starting with max max the, there's a line in white columns that reads this way um entering sappho is taking on a series of voices i guess we should all contemplate that i'm really interested to hear starting with max what you think of entering sappho taking on a series of voices and then can we apply it to clip because the vo it's not it's now it, to me at least it's not clear who's speaking and what the attitude is toward these um rustic girls in in that scene so max can you start us off on why sappho might be taking on a series of voices and what kind of voices are we dealing with in the poem clip well, I think this connects to what Larissa's, you know, saying about what's scary is is part of what's scary about the frames that Dowling deploys in this book is the fact that they're bound up with these deep time and deep place, right? So that that moment on the side of the road is so fast, it's a clip. Um, but behind and, and the context for that moment is so vast. And when we do slow down and consider that, um, there is no single effective register for us to sit in and experience that or even begin to analyze that or, or figure out our complicity within that. And so, you know, I think in clip, the poem, it's, it's kind of about these, these frames that are forced upon us for looking at history and looking at the past. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the, the positioning of the figure of the girl and or the child settler in clip, um, this is a ghost story for me. I think this is about ghosts as much as it's about finding methods for genuinely and kind of deeply engaging with these settler colonialist histories. So I take it, Max, that for you, the line near the end of clip, the line, those girls lay claim to time is an important, it's an important statement. Can you... And it's, and it's an important echo of Sappho's poetry. You know, it's always about memory for Sappho and whether her and her students or her girls or her lovers will be remembered. And those making those claims poetically and otherwise on history are so scary and so dangerous. Julia, what are some of the sapphic elements of Clip? Yeah, I think I think like this um, array of I don't I don't see the word student, but there's certainly the girl, the recurrence of the girl, sort of this cast, which may cast of girls, or maybe it's the recurrence of the one girl. Um, and so I, I think the poem is inviting us to read that girl as a beloved, even as that girl is also read kind of um, ominously. And I, I really like Max's characterization of this as a ghost story. Um, the opening couplet, Monday, May 15, Sappho, Washington, a logging chapter is closed. So going back to time and the idea that a chapter has a chapter in time or in history has closed chapter of a book has closed. And then May 1st is the date that appears at the end of the poem. The post office closes. There's something about correspondence that's going to cease, um, correspondence across time. And that's something has already happened like earlier in May. And it's so upsetting that um, why would anyone want to live? So the, And these are all juxtapositions and condensations and um, remixes of language, but They've been assembled into these sentences that make a new kind of sense. Larissa, everything goes backward and forward in this. On one hand, and I'm 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 really following from what Julie was saying about that May. Um, on one hand, flowers blooming in an old bathtub suggests an abandoned town, ruins, junk. But on the other hand, it takes a certain cultivation and care to have flowers blooming in an old bathtub. We can't really tell whether this town is done or partly alive or go in a ghostly way alive. Help us out with that. What are we, what are we supposed to, this is the first poem in the book. So you 
You don't really know too much about the analog of Sappho and Sappho at this point. Imagine being a new reader to this book, thinking, where the heck are we and who's speaking? You know, I didn't notice that until, until Julia, until you just said that just now, that the poem begins on Monday, May 15th. But then in that last, on, that la on the last page, that third couplet from the bottom, why would anyone want to live when May 1st the post office closes? I guess it's a general May 1st, but, but still, to have the May 15th appear before May 1st kind of puts you in this weird reversal, temporally speaking. And thinking about the conversation that we were having about land uh, just now and the problem of memory that Max was talking about um, and the problem of temporality more broadly is, um, you know, when we think about this linear relationship to time, I mean, that's very much a colonial imposition, right? That time unfolds in a linear fashion progressively, I mean, um, and that for the indigenous inhabitants of the land, um, time was a cycle or it was time, time was immemorial, time has a kind of continuity so that the present and the past and the future are always present with us in the same moment. Um, and so it's really interesting that, um, you know, she opens the poem on May 15th and in a sense closes it on May 1st, um, almost as though it's a, it's a gesture towards that. Um, with regards to the flowers blooming in the old bathtub, um, you know, and this idea of entering Sappho, Julia was saying, um, yes, on the one hand, it's the entering as one drives into the town in a vehicle. But from a lesbian point of view, one also, you would have to read entering Sappho as entering the body of the lover. Um, and there's something really curious going on in that, in that second couplet because, because of the sexual connotation, country maidens were good riders, flowers blooming in an old bathtub. There's something derisive and something sinister, but then the flowers, who could be metaphors for women or women's bits, bloom in this ratchety old bathtub anyway. Down Highway 101 apiece, what country girl says, you can do these things in cities, small town life is all I want to know. They front on the old houses for truckers and tourists, tearing down the last of the company shacks. What girl waits like a wife for wet attackers spinning yarns from her country dress? Oh, that girl gathers it up with artless grace. You can still see a girl's feet at Sappho. You can see the owner of the company store. Those girls would sit, eating clams, soft blossoms, simple dresses in a line on the ground. Maybe loggers and their families shot deer, bear, elk, some girl in the area. Why would anyone want to live when May 1, the post office closes forever? I wonder if I could ask the three of you each, all three of you, to comment on the threat that's either vague and implicit or explicit. Um, I point you to the wet attackers about halfway through the poem. Um, and then the statement, a, a question, what country girl is unspoiled nature, the equivalent, the equation being the girl as nature, and then connecting that to the hunting scene near the end. Uh, maybe loggers and their families shot deer, bear, elk, dash, some girl in the area, suggesting that the girls may be hunted. So starting with Max, then Julia, then Larissa, would you riff on that? What, um, who are those wet attackers? And what is, what is the speaker of the poem trying to tell us about the equation of the girls with unspoiled nature? To me, a lot of these images are generic tropes. So that in this poem, we have a kind of, quote, like storytelling where these genres are getting mashed together. And some of them are, you know, as crude as a nostalgia for the West. Some of them are like the innocent white girl, adolescent girl, right? These kind of really stock images that you would see 
not only in, you know, these various like sort of ideologies that are related to talking about white supremacy and settler colonialism, but there are also images that are like reproduced over and over visually. I, I just, when I read this poem, I think of it as a paint, almost like a painting where you see, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a still life. It's a landscape poem. It's a figure painting and it's, but it's it's knotting together the codes and the stereotypes that that exist historically around Sappho, you know, the original lesbian. Like that's so funny when Dowling says that phrase, original lesbian. But it's also the codes um, that have to do with nation building and um, you know these these endless cycles of kind of like reproducing notions of democracy. In the Greek sense, I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm. Fantastic. Julia, your thought on this? Yeah, I'm just thinking about how Sarah Dowling is so good at finding accidental juxtapositions in the process of using found lang- language. Because I could, I can't help but wonder, like, what does the original article look like that a lot of this t- text is taken from? It's taken from a 1970s article. So could it have been that the girls there are a bunch of girls sitting around eating clams thinking about how loggers and their families shot elk, bears and deer. Um, area girl said, you know, like I find myself wanting to reconstruct the language in a different way. And that to me also feels um, sapphic in the sense that um, the, the town gets named in 1895 around the same time that there's a big discovery of Sappho's poetry and anytime Sappho's poetry gets discovered, there are all these questions about authorship and all these questions about the traces of language that may or may not be held together by ligaments of other language and may or may not make sense the way that we that we want them to. And so it's almost like the the form of Sappho's poetry is it's like indeterminacy would probably be a too simplistic way of putting it. I think it's more about some kind of contingency that is getting exploited in a really interesting critical way to say something about settler colonialism in this book. Thank you. Larissa, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I'm still, you know, these lines, um, maybe loggers and their family shot deer, bear, elk, so they hunt. And then some girl in the area, that some girl in the area, it's so shocking. Like, it's just such a shocking moment in the poem. Um, and of course, if one reads on in, into the book, um, there's, a, there's a murder of a girl, which is a bit more in your face, more clear. So I'm struggling with, like, I'm listening to what Max and Julia are saying about, you know, Max is saying these images, they keep coming at us. There's something kind of generic about them. There's a call to a classical imagination of, you know, virginal girlhood, Sappho's girls, I guess, on the one hand, who sort of appear as these innocent country girls who are elevated to this place on a pedestal. You want to hold them up. You hold the girl. We hold these girls up. But then these sort of sinister moments and sinister bits of language intervene. So we were talking before about the flowers blooming in the old bathtub, but we also there's also cows grazing in the orchard. Like that's a really derogatory way of speaking about a girl or a woman, right? To call her a cow. And I think Dowling's really conscious of that and playing with the doubleness, you know, of on the one hand, a kind of a posh or a romantic figuration of girls and women in idyllic country spaces. And then on the other hand, the knowledge, I think for anybody who's lived on the West Coast, um, we're so conscious of the horrible kinds of things that happened happened to girls and to women, particularly Indigenous girls and women, right? So there's the that whole horrible ongoing violence against missing missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. She's, she's juxtaposing those two things and trying to decide, you know, from a location of a white lesbian identification, but also Sarah Dowling's own poetic 
subjectivity, trying to think through the terrible mess and mash of these things. And she's offering us this impossible juxtaposition of two different sets of images, two different ways of being in history, two different ways of being in time that come together in this place of Sappho, Washington, um, that, yeah, it just doesn't resolve easily. And yet she's caught something and crystallized it. And she's defining her work, Larissa, as taking on a series of voices. So that implicates her in the eye, and that eye gets pretty troubling in, in, uh, in clip, mm. uh, by saying, entering Sappho, which in some way, in a kind of ethnographic way or exploratory way or research in the library way, Sarah Dowling is the one entering Sappho, the problem of Sappho, the issue of this. And that's, that is taking on a series of voices. So I ask any of you about the I. Um, down Highway 101, a piece. So when the speaker says a piece, there's a certain local marker, colloquial, a piece, down the highway, a piece. What country girl says you can do these things in cities? Small town, li town life is all I want to know. So who's that I? And... You know, is it simply, uh, nothing is simple here, but is it, is it basically the document that's been recovered that is being resituated in the text by Sarah? Does Sarah have anything invested in that eye? Is, is the eye one of those voices that Sarah is taking on? And who is that eye? And how are we supposed to think about that eye? I guess I'm tossing this over to Julia. <laughs> Yeah, I initially I just read it as the country girl. The country girl is saying, this is all I want to know. But that might not work because there, because there's this recurrence of the phrase, what girl? What girl as in which girl? Or what kind of girl? Or who among these girls in this poem is saying these things or doing these things or wants these things? Um, and that so someone's asking that question. So there has to be an I, I think, asking that question. And so, again, this is, I guess, another instance of recurrence that I find really interesting that is performing some kind of other kind of work um, to construct an I that is somehow holding it all together. Is that the only I in the entire poem? Yeah, so that's... That seems important because there's actually an I in lots of other poems in this collection. So this poem might stand out, in fact, for the absence of the pronoun I, even though that doesn't necessarily mean there's no first-person speech in this poem. It's, there seems to be plenty of first-person speech in this poem. You know, there's something clever here, I think, potentially. It's a flash of an I, and... You know, that's the, the easy, one easy understanding of Sappho, right, is like that Sappho gave us the lyric eye. And so here it flashes before us and then it's taken away. Larissa, um, after the eye makes the appearance, we can't help but think that that eye has something to do with the voice that's speaking the poem, the speaker we call it, but... But then there's this disturbing phrase that all of us have talked about after the hunting, after the shooting, some girl. It's not one of the girls. It's not the girls on the front porch. It's some girl. I mean, as a reader, that pisses me off. I mean, it's supposed to some girl. Um, it reminds me of the worst part of William Carlos Williams to Elsie, some girl, some Elsie, as if they, you can substitute one or the other. That's right. It's a push that some girl pushes the girl away in a derisive kind of way. And some girl is different, but also not different from the oh, anyone, right? Anyone would want to live in the fenced area nearby. I found that so disturbing, the oh, anyone, because it's calling, it's, it is in a sense an unspoken I calling to you, girl, who might have a problem with a place like Sappho and saying, Oh, anyone would not want to live in the fenced area nearby because that anyone to me kind of calls to, you know, the a sort of false universal that you'll hear a lot of the trolley dudes talking about, oh, anybody would love this. You know, what's wrong with you? You don't like this. This would be great for anybody. Anyone would love to live in the fenced area nearby because that anyone is actually also maybe some girl 
right? And also for some girl to live in a fenced area nearby as though she's a cow. Yeah. Right? That's right. Makes the some girl very much an object of um, heteropatriarchal violence in the first instance. So you'll hear many Indigenous feminists um, talk about the, the continuity between women and land. We've talked about that a little bit. Um, and suddenly that continuity becomes really kind of um, brutally present in the pushing away of the eye, of some girl's eye. So the eye is weirdly, I wonder if there's something deliberate in the absenting of the eye on, 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 on Dowling's part um, by placing it only in the mouth of the, of the country girl who, the girl who only wants to know a life in the country is not some girl who's murdered in a field nearby. I think Dowling is conscious of language as a kind of, you know, a, a nearby field, right? Where the eye is absented for some girls. I was going to say what you've just said, Larissa, makes me read that the last couplet on this page completely differently. Anyone wet dress around her feet becomes, you know, an utterly horrifying right. image of yes. violence, the, the yeah. aftermath of violence. Yeah. I also think uh, uh, artless grace is, is an important phrase here because Sarah Dowling doesn't for a minute think this is artless. So the voice that's saying artless grace is not the same voice who speaks colloquially above as I, but is in alliance with someone who would create an irony about artless grace. I'd like us to talk about the work that Sarah Dowling is doing and White Columns tells us about that in the, toward the end of that third paragraph. Um, so let, let's talk about that passage. Um, Entering Sappho is listening to oral histories held at the Special Collections, University of Washington, that's in Seattle, and reading through, oh no, it's not, it's in Bothell probably. I don't know where it is. We, well, I guess we should find that out and put it in the program notes but in special collections, and reading through newspaper clippings from the Seattle Public Library. So this is library research. Entering Sappho is an engagement with desperate, indulgent, and condescending nostalgia. And then it documents a wish for this special kind of small-town life. So who's willing to speak about the work? I mean, what kind of ethnographic or historical work is this? Well, I think it's scholarly, but it's also uh, starts with a super um, ordinary kind of commonplace lesbian moment, which is, oh, my God, look at this sign, the irony. It's a sign for us. It's so funny. And the irony is what, Julia? The the irony is no one named the town for les for us, for lesbians. They named it because they like they happen to like Sappho's poetry. Um, and so we get to we get to have the pleasure of this accident, this accidental um, sapphic lesbian monument, and then it becomes a deeply historical scholarly project by going into this archive of wait what how did this town come to be named Sappho, which is actually like n n sort of beside the point because the bigger point is is the history of colonial possession and naming itself. Do we call this out as on ourselves as desperate, indulgent, and condescendingly nostalgic? Well, I read it as both. I read it, I read it as nostalgic. That's uh, nostalgic could apply to any number of, of people who have, who have possessed this, this place, including us white lesbians pulling over our car while the trucks and other cars are whizzing by at a fast clip. Um, and it's scary um, and the, the book wanting to dwell in this incredibly uncomfortable place between deriving s some pleasure from this sign and wanting to confront, um, the deeper meaning of the sign. Max and Larissa, do you want to add to this, um, the sure. method? I mean, what's so interesting, I love the fact, I love that idea, I, uh, you know, when I read that, that, that passage, this image of Sarah Dowling sitting in the library past in my head, it was very, um, I found that image very sweet, that's that sense of her sitting there pouring through 
um, all these archival papers. It's another way of dealing with the voices, isn't it, Al? By going into the archive and by, and by returning to Sappho as well and pulling up the voices and listening to them. I mean, for me, that's one way of, um, you know, Sarah Dowling kind of doing the work of taking, I guess you could call it responsibility at, a, at an extra subjective level. So it's not just the I um, in that sense of the bounded and closed, you know, enlightenment self, um, because I don't think that one can confront colonial history or a colonial present in that kind of way, that one has to think of oneself, right, as part of collectivity in order to begin to do the work of um, of beginning to think about responding. Um, one has to think of oneself as a little bit larger than that, that bounded eye. And I think that part of, you know, part of what she's doing there is in the archive is it's a way of expanding, of being together with um, the people in the town, the family Lamoureux, right? The lovers who named the town Sappho. Um, the, the people with whom we have fraught and difficult relationships, you know, the loggers. Um, anybody who's, who would have been there on the ground in the late 1900s doing that colonial settlement work and, and for her to say, okay, this is also part of I, but it's an expansive I, it's an archival I. I think her going into the archive is in a sense also part of the work of entering Sappho. Max, your thought on this? That was so beautiful, Larissa. I think, you know, one could could misread the method here as a deconstruction or a deconstructive impulse, but that that is not what it is. It's actually pointing out the settler patriarchal languages are 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 a process of unmaking and unnaming violently so, um, for erasure, for genocide, you know, um, and how those, those languages, uh, replicate cultural supremacies, racial hierarchies. And so through the modes and methods of adaptation, which is related, I think, to translation as well, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a kind of archaeology at work here or or an undoing of archaeology, especially if we think if we know archaeology as a colonialist project. Um, and so here I just kept, you know, I read this book and I think about how language can be presented or performed as a kind of dig. And throughout this book, it's always like a group, a ditch, a ravine, even the cover mm. of the book, you know, the road that cuts through the forest to take you to Sappho. And so this method for me is like a digging and it's reverse, you know, and the experiment or effort to cycle back to Larissa's take on this, right? That is, is how can we cut into colonialism um, or exercise these kinds of gestures from queerness? How do how do we, in a personal sense, right? How can we know that the, that they are there and that we're fighting um, those ideologies? You know, colonialism's ideologies, its violences, its binaries, and its order within us. Mm -hmm. Max, that is amazing. I love what you said about the groove, about the ditch, about the highway. Because this cover is incredible, right? I mean, it totally looks oh like my you God, know what. It's breathtaking. It totally looks like you know what. <laughs> but it really um, does, doesn't you know it? It really does. But it's also the when you know when you're talking about a cut, right? Like the highway is a cut. It's a colonial cut on the land. So it's both things, which is so, you know, talk about infolding, right? Like a, an infolding. Yeah, it disrupts and it um, and it marks even as it excavates. Yes, and but it's borders. also, but it's also the site of the ultimate pleasure. It, it it documents a wish for this special kind of small town life, such a powerful and open statement. And it it it, it that line isn't. It documents my wish, <laughs> clearly. Mm. It documents that there was a wish, that there has been a wish. Max used the word genocide is the first time that word was used in this conversation so far, but I can't help but read that 
somehow, weirdly, Max, um, I don't know how to do anything with this, but I l read that sentence and I think of genocide. Not just the fenced area nearby, but it documents a wish for this special kind of small town life. I just um, connect the two. Look, uh, why don't we go around once? Uh, thoughts that you meant to say today but didn't have a chance to yet. Starting with Julia. Final thought, Julia? Yeah, this is just kind of a follow-up to the incredible comments that both Larissa and Max just made in the last few minutes. And I'm looking at, um, it's a different passage in the book. And the last couple of lines of the whole book read, all we have is this thicker becoming. All we have, all we are is this tangled perhaps. And so I'm thinking about this act the compositional method of the book is a thickening of materials, but also maybe a thickening of what Larissa called the collective. And then the tangled perhaps of that thickening as this excavatory method that Max was talking about. And I'm now thinking about like the accumulation of the entire book really differently. Thank you, Julia. Larissa, final thought? Um, I would also, I'm still thinking about this highway and would just like to remark that, you know, the highway is also the highway of tears, right? She must be thinking of that. In northern BC, I think between Prince George and Prince Rupert, there's a highway that's called the highway of tears because it's a highway from which many women have been va have vanished, picked up by loggers and, and, and so on. And so it's really difficult to look at this image of the highway cutting through forest without thinking about that as well. And I also, I did a little bit of research on um, the town of Pisht, and I, I didn't get a chance to say anything about it earlier, but um, apparently Pisht is a town close to Sappho, Washington, um, which was originally a Clallam village. Um, and that one day while the villages were away at work, um, the loggers moved in and raised the town and um, put a lumber mill there. And so when she's talking about these trips to Pish, like there's something really pointed, I think, that um, she's very subtly commenting on. And yeah, I just wanted to note that. Thank you, Larissa. Max, final thought? Uh, I would like to just mention the, the poem Soft Memory in this book, which is the experimental translations of Sappho's fragments, which operates as another kind of core to the project. and. I think that poem, Soft Memory, is a core of the book, but it's also a kind of lure. So there's something scary there, too, where we're taken back again. You know, and again is a word I think that comes up in Sappho's fragments a lot, or, or in the translations, at least. And so here we are again, again, almost as if we're in a place in this sapphic space um, where Dowling, again, with this like really edgy, tense language that is all hers reproduces Sappho for us and leaves us to make of it what we will. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, my final thought is just really a postscript, um, something we haven't talked about, the presence of the company shacks and the company store. Um, clearly this town, all the bad shit that's going on in this town is organized by the industries that, you know, as, as, as creative as the founding of Sappho Washington was, potentially, or at least imaginative or inventive or nostalgic, whatever it is, there's still behind it the company shacks. That is to say, the company owns the old houses for truckers and the company store, which is where you have to buy everything. And it's, it's really an organized, uh, I, I don't quite want to say genocide, but it, the whole thing is is witting rather than unwitting. Um, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, a chance for several of us or all of us, if you're quick to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world, visual arts, musical arts, anything you'd like to recommend. Julia Block, you're first. Yeah, I'm holding Divya Victor's book, Herb, which is just out from Nightboat Books, and is a lyric and essayistic engagement with the legacies of anti-South Asian violence in the U.S. And I recommend it highly for all of the amazing things it does 
with language to witness and record. Fantastic. Great recommendation. Larissa Lai, oh, gather I'll, some paradise. I'll do a little shout out for uh, Anahita Jamali Rad Still, which is going to launch tomorrow night uh, off of Talon Books. Um, it's her second book of poetry um, about alienated interiority. I actually did a little blurb for it. It's very, um, very condensed, very concise, um, po poetics of silence and presencing life under high capitalism um, and the body, but really kind of subtly put, put forward. Fantastic. Say again the title. Uh, still. Fantastic. Max, gather some paradise, please. I couldn't decide, so I have two. I wanted to give a shout out to the new anthology of radical trans poetics called We Want It All, out from Nightboat Books. I'm always grateful when another trans phone book drops. And then I have, uh, I wanted to shout out Joshua Escobar's Bareback Nightfall, um, which is from Noemi Press. And I, I think this is a good one for fans and readers who are interested in the overlap between performance, writing, and poetics. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, my gathering paradise uh, goes back a few books of Julia Block's. And I'm thinking of the one called Valley Fever, in particular, a poem, Hospitalist, which Hospitalist, which I um, reread recently in light of all the illness going around and thoughts of illness. So, Julia, you have a copy nearby. I wonder if you would be willing to read this poem for us, would you? I would. I, I, I would be happy to. I haven't read this poem in a little while. Hospitalist. New definitions of doing poorly, doing up on the face, not always facing up, not always aware of corners, sad and light, jazzy. Aristotle says thought by itself moves nothing. No one decides to have fact, Troy. All the sounds are in miniature, but the room is large in ruined light. Fantastic. No one, no one decides to have sacked Troy. Holy cow. Thank you. That's from Valley Fever. Well, that's all the unwitting monuments we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Julia Block, Max Crandall, and Larissa Lai, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Poem Talk will be going on the road to convene on Charles Bernstein's porch in Brooklyn with Pierre Joris, Rachel Levitsky, Leanne Brown, and Charles Bernstein himself to talk about two songs by the famous poet-songwriter member of the Fugs, the late Thule Kupferberg. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us next month for that or another episode of Poem Talk.